Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for our time in it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in 2 Peter. Um, I always like to, if I, I know offhand how long it's been. It's been about four or five years since I was in this passage. And it always seems like yesterday when, you're, when you preach every Sunday, it, it just sort of all strings together and you feel like, oh, I'm boring them. We're in the same passage. Some people have lived their whole lives in the five years since it was preached on before. But every time you end up looking through it and, and seeing not just what you said before, but seeing new things as you, you grow as a teacher. If you don't have the notes there in the foyer, in the back uh, printout of the sermon notes. Um, the second and uh, first end of chapter one and all of chapter two is a very close read on what the book of Jude is like. You see, they must have been in conversation with one another. Uh, Jude was the Lord's brother, Peter, obviously an apostle. But some of their wording is very similar. So you might sound like, I, I recognize this, and be recognizing Jude as, as well as Second Peter. Um, I have the last verse of chapter 1 here at the top, because we could have started out with verse 1 of chapter 2, but this says, first of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, there's an awful lot of things to be said in reaction to that. One, it could be taken as a warning about my Revelation Bible study come July, that it doesn't become a matter of my own interpretation. But in the background, the, the distinction I want you to see going into this, going into chapter 2, is the phrase, the impulse of man but men moved by the Holy Spirit. You're basically saying the impulse of human beings to the human beings or the impulse of the Holy Spirit to the human being. Men moved by the Holy Spirit is them being impelled by the Holy Spirit. So it's the same idea. You have human impulse, spiritual impulse of God. Now, he gives that as the reason that we don't make this a matter of our own interpretation. Now you can't go around much in this world without hearing some Yahoo uh, suggesting that we all have our own truth. You know, seek your own bliss, find your own truth, whatever is your truth is okay. It's, a, it's, it's basically a postmodern notion. I've mentioned it before. The basic idea that truth doesn't exist, objective reality does not have uh, a definite meaning, all meaning is your meaning, you give it. And postmodern critical theory in literature and such is uh, deconstructionism where they would look at a passage and whatever the critic thinks it means, it does actually mean. It's not what the author wrote in it, it's not what the author wanted you to learn from it. It really is as true what the critic thought about your book as what you thought you were writing in your book. Because there is no 
when it all comes down to man's own interpretation, when it all comes down to just your impulse, what makes your impulse more true than the guy who's reading your impulse? People can make up what they want. Well, when we have, as a Christians, we, we didn't get to escape merely because the trends in philosophy shifted and the whole world went into some relativistic handbasket. We're still Christians and we still have the word of God where the, pro the apostle of God said, no, these men were moved by the Holy Spirit, so it shouldn't be a matter of your own interpretation. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, you might remember that section. I mention it too often, where I think it was Coleridge he was uh, speaking of and uh, looking at a waterfall and some tourist said it was pretty and somebody said it was sublime and it wasn't just a matter of two different people's opinions or no, no accounting for taste. Some people think waterfalls are pretty and some people think they're sublime and he says no. They're only sublime. They don't get to be pretty. Now, not because he was right, but because he was holding a notion that says, if there is a creator, if there is a, uh, someone who presents a communication to you in his creation, in words, in revelation, whatever it is, it merits a certain response. Because God does not just create the thing, he creates the opinion of the thing that ought to be. Now you might think that it ought to have been pretty and not sublime, well, that's fine, that can be argued out, but once it becomes one of the two, it is one of the two, or maybe a third thing. We are the kind of people that are looking to give meaning its merited response. So when, when, when the word of God comes to us, we don't, and you can see it in Christian circles all the time, here we are at All Souls Christian Church, and some guy without a tie on is telling you what he thinks of the Bible, and all of a sudden, you're supposed to believe me? I mean, the, the, I, the, next, the next church down the road will give you an entirely, maybe different accounting of Second Peter. The question that you have to ask yourself is not which teacher did you like, but which told you what was written by the Holy Spirit. You have this in loss theory, you know, with strict construction of the Constitution versus, what's it called, Benicia, was loose, strict and loose? Living, living uh, document, the living document. Oh, activist judges. Activist judges. You, know, you look at activist judges. If, if you had written a book, and you knew that the critic who was writing up the review for you in the New York Times was an activist critic, or had a loose construction view, or a living document, you'd be going, oh no, they're not going to ever find out what I put in my book. God wants you to know something. And we're supposed to have a kind, and the reason I'm stressing this, you say, Evan, you only have maybe 30 more minutes, uh, lighten up Francis, you've only been through two verses. Well, I'm sure you love the word of God just that much, but no matter how. So it goes all the way to the bottom of the page. Small print. I'll skip some things. Well, the reason is, chapter 2, 2 Peter 2, is about false teachers. Now, 
Some of you have maybe have a view of the early church. You know, when I was in back in the Jesus People movement, back when I had the hair. Um, is it? Uh, everybody's getting a message from uh, like a Megan's wedding. Okay. Is it something we need to know? Silver Porsche. Silver Porsche? Ford. Ford. Okay. My Ford's champagne, I think, or white gold. Okay. It's nice to know that our nation is ready in the middle of church to respond with action. Uh, <clears throat> now, there's some people who listen to these sermons online. I want to... Okay, there was a phone-wide, nationwide manhunt for something. That's why all the phones went off. Back to the text. Chapter 2 is about false teachers. And we have sometimes a view of the early church. I was mentioning the Jesus people. Everybody would talk about, oh, we just want to have the kind of church they had in the first century. Nah, you don't. Because it was no different. There were false teachers. They were bad groups. There were people who misused the power of God to lead disciples after themselves. St. Paul says that in, in Acts when he's talking to the elders at Miletus. He says, from among your very selves, deceivers will arise to lead disciples after themselves. To the men he was talking to, not some stranger from another part of the world, but people he had trained. False teachers are present. Have always been present. The reason the Pharisees didn't like Jesus is because they thought he was a false teacher. Because false teachers were around. False messiahs were around. But false prophets, verse 1, also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. First thing you should think is, you should narrow your eyes as you look to the front of All Souls Christian and go, yeah, I can suspect Evan. Evan is known for some pretty strange ideas. And, and I'm going to go to that Bible study on Revelation, but that's either going to be proof he needs to be burned or uh, um, was it somebody in the Inklings? They were talking to Charles Williams. I don't know if you know if you've read any Charles Williams. But uh, somebody had, had just said something like, you know, in the Middle Ages they burned people. And uh, reading Charles Williams' stuff uh, makes me understand why they burned people. And C.S. Lewis said something like, yes, he's imminently combustible. <laughs> and sort of my, my gift in life is to be imminently combustible by a variety of standards. But we know that they're going to be false teachers. And if you care, about your thought, you're supposed to be warned because there are people who are inter interpreting the scripture themselves by their own interpretation because they see it as a, a not divinely inspired work. And so if I can make this powerful piece of literature uh, a guide to my own cult, well and good. But if you believe it is from God, you want to know what God was saying. You wouldn't want that 
to be given to you as if it wasn't saying anything in particular to you. The idea that, say you're a single guy riding to work on your bike, because <laughs> you're a sissy. Say you're on your motorcycle. Okay, better, better image. And you pull up next to a car at a stoplight, remember you're single, and there's this beautiful, you know, Christy Brinkley sort of blonde in the car next to you. And she, she looks at you and she says something, but you can't hear what it was. How much you would give to know what it was. Especially she has this look of intense interest in her eyes. Because you're on a motorcycle, not a bicycle. And... Uh, you really want to know. You would search high and low to find out if there's any way of knowing what she had said. You don't just want to make something up that's self-flattering because you would know you made it up. You wouldn't be caring about what the other person had actually said. When you value, when you know that that is what is valuable, when you can't understand the wife, she calls you at Winco and says, could you pick up... You don't just jot a few items down on a piece of paper and say, so, well, I bought the... I couldn't understand a word you said, but uh, I didn't ask you to clarify. We want to know what is actually the message. False teachers don't need to know what is actually the message. They're trying to go by their own interpretation because they know they're dealing in a world of impulse. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now these seem to be, however you slice it, if you're more reformed in your theology, these are clearly believers because Jesus Christ had died for them, the master who bought them. They're denying even the master. You might be Christian, might be, you know, different degrees of false teaching. You know, I've sometimes, I grew up Southern Baptist and I have sometimes been sitting in a Southern Baptist church, and I trust Southern Baptists. It's Baptist. It's not Baptist. Baptist. Southern Baptist. And uh, every once in a while, you're sitting there comfortably reading along with the pastor preaching the sermon, and then he'll say something. You look at him, you look at him. You, look at him. you know, he just walked off the reservation. They don't do it often. We have gradients of false teaching. I bet you... I don't like to say this, that I've said some things that weren't true. Just, just possibly. But then there are some people who say a lot of things that aren't true. You ever seen those pastors? Some of them are on TV. Some of them write books. Some of them are famous. They're bringing in destructive heresies, even denying Jesus Christ sometimes. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, William Barclay, who wrote the series of commentaries, um, wrote his autobiography in which he denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He was a famous commentator that Christians used the world over to guide them through the scriptures. They'd have the whole set of his commentaries. Barclay's commentaries. It was the guiding commentary that led the film... Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, if you remember that back in the 70s, I think it was. He denied the deity of Jesus Christ, the resurrection. Didn't believe it. 
You will find some people who are bishops in certain churches who do not believe in God. They are atheist bishops. Denying even the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their licentiousness, and because of them the way of truth will be reviled. In other words, Christianity will take a black eye because of the way unbelieving teachers function in it. And it will involve moral turpitude. And I just said that because I like to use words like turpitude. It was that or profligacy. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. From of old, their condemnation has not been idle, and their destruction has not been asleep. The apostle has let you know, as a believer, to the believers he was writing to, there will always be false teachers. They will rise up among us, and we will get exploited by them. They are doing it for cause... But they're doing it in a world. This is why you need to be a student of, you might say, the impulse of the Holy Spirit, not seeing this as the impulse of man. Because if I have a general feeling about the word, that it's what I can do with it, or how it answers my impulses. Have you ever felt that temptation to have a wonderful realization from a passage of scripture that it matches what your temperament already is? Have you noticed that certain theologies attract people that are like that already? It's already successful. So you get really emotional, pew-jumping type of people in really emotional, pew-jumping churches. And you get Calvinists who are naturally Calvinists in Calvinist churches. And you get brain-dead Arminians in brain-dead Arminian churches. We, We look for the place that not necessarily is the true thing, is the thing that just is the right balance of what impulses I have and what impulses they have. But we know that the whole world of religion is being run interpretatively as if man's impulse was all that mattered. And the false teachers know how to exploit us with false words. This is done secretly. They don't have a seminary called False Teachers Seminary. I mean, you hear that, that uh, well, I don't know if you follow Christian gossip at all. You just have to be on Facebook and a Christian, I think, and, you're, and it downloads to your, your uh, wall. But all sorts of denominations, conservative denominations, are going through threats of radical shift in their preaching of righteousness. And oddly enough, it always is adjusting towards licentious behavior. Because everybody is LGBTQ, LNMOP, sort of uh, fear that if we don't get on board with good old-timey homosexuality, um, you know, the problem is all your phones are on and they just heard me say that, and now the NSA is going to be after me on Facebook. I'm not in California. Did you hear that? I'm not in California. In case they've missed the GPS locator. They know. They know where you are. Uh, Yeah. Did I tell you about that? This has nothing to do with the sermon. I was talking to someone on my porch, on my porch, 
about why we Americans are fat. I'm justifying, okay, self-justifying. And I said, you know, maybe in Europe they have smaller plates, you know, smaller plates, and so they put less food on them. It was an odd conversation, except the next day on my Facebook feed, the trending story in the news was portion side in Europe versus America, and they knew where I lived. Don't trust them, okay? Well, nonetheless, if I get arrested this week for saying anything against homosexuality, you'll know why. Because I did. It is Pride <laughs> The last wave, Pride, yes. Yeah, pride, uh, end of the Pride Month. When we think of Christians, you know, the rainbow is the symbol of God's judgment. <laughs> but, but that he'll never judge it by flood again. Next time, we, next time it'll be fire. Um, whatever the case, they secretly come into our lives. They secretly get established. We create venues for them. We create job descriptions. We create uh, catalogs of books put, in, put out by Christian publishers. And as the Christian publisher slowly slides away from Jesus Christ or the truth, so does their catalog. And we don't know that. And we've always been happy with, you know, pastors from Trinity Divinity School. And 20 years later, you can't be happy with... I don't know if that's true about Trinity. Or Dallas Theological Seminary, whatever the seminary is. You always trusted someone from your denomination. And then you realize that your denomination ain't in the faith anymore. They will exploit you. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So secretly, they're teaching false things, all the way down to absolute sinful behavior of a, say, a sexual nature, licentiousness usually means that, and they will uh, fool us. Because we're dumb as a bag of hammers. We're, we just, somebody says love and faith, and have you ever talked to an LDS person? Some nice people. They're not Christians. They talked about Jesus. Well, yes. Well, they talked about faith. Yes. Do they mean what you mean? No. False words. We're suckers for it. Because we don't know that the subtext of the word, people are using false words, so you will believe. And by the time you have allowed them in, you've got to grant them certain things. Soon as you allow that the LDS church is just another Christian denomination, and it's not. It has nothing to do with Christianity. But it has the name Jesus. It has the words faith. It has the words grace. But it doesn't mean the same thing. You have to expect the false teacher. You have to expect the false words. So what happens? What happens here? Um, we ta no, God takes a dim view. Listen to this in verse 4. <clears throat> At the end of that it says, From of old their combination has not been idle, and their destruction has not been asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment... 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven other persons when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction and made them an example to those who were to be ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the ungodly, and if greatly distressed by the licentiousness of the wicked, for by what that righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them, he was vexed in his righteous soul day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This tracks very closely to the book of Jude. He basically says the angels who fell before the flood you get that story in early Genesis who married the daughters of men and produced the giants God brought judgment on the world and Noah was rescued and then it says Sodom and Gomorrah which was indulging in the lust of defiling passion he rescued Lot and his family now what he's promising us is that in this world, because what are we supposed to do, right? What, you say, you're in a good sermon, you have three points and then application. What are we supposed to do? You know, we're a small church, you can't even say homosexuality from the pulpit and the pastor goes under arrest. What are, what are we supposed to do? We can't do anything. We couldn't create a movement and all get the same t-shirts and march around against the licentiousness of the age. And I, I, you know I'm not that sort of person. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I'm supposed to trust that my God knows how to punish the ungodly and he knows how to re re rescue the righteous. That's what he says. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He doesn't actually give you any marching orders about what to go do about it. He says you know who to trust. Because what we believe is true, because we believe that which has come down from God, we know that that God also, it's not just a me gets, get, I get the right meaning out of the text, but that relationship puts me in good standing with him. Now, when you look at what happens with the impulse of man and one's own interpretation, that's the sort of the guide to this passage as I was thinking about it this morning. Um, we're looking at God's judgment. God takes care of it. What we see in early in 1 Peter when he says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We as Christians need to be fully prepared for this to happen and, frankly, fully prepared for the false teachers to win and get the biggest churches and make the most money and be destroyed. I don't have to destroy them. They're insulting God. I just have to be faithful. He says, Christ was an example that we should follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. What if you belong to a little church with an odd pastor who said weird things. But he was right. Let's just imagine that for a moment. Let's enjoy that imagination for a moment. 
doesn't matter that you didn't succeed in town, you didn't get a whole bunch of people. It doesn't matter if other people say bad things. But the question is whether it is, says that in the scripture. Every pastor faces that. The only authority a pastor has, successful or unsuccessful, is whether or not they say what God has said. What we have to realize is that when we stop and go, okay, we've got to stop this. There are false teachers. We've got to have a way of bringing them up on charges and burning them at the stake or bringing them up on charges and kicking them out of our group. Because we don't realize that the purpose of God for the thinking of God given to man is to produce something and not people swearing an oath to the right theology. The right theology is the right thing to have, but the right theology is supposed to create something. You can't expect this to stop you can't, exp- it's water seeking its own level. Humanity goes here. People fall for it. People who want to have your attention and want to manipulate you know that you can be man- manipulated by your impulses and lying to you. God is saying, you should be concerned with the orthodoxy of God, the Christian true view, is to produce in you righteousness. He didn't look at Noah and say, oh, look, someone who has the right doctrines of God. I assume that Noah's doctrines of God were reasonably right, but God didn't say that. He saw a righteous man. Peter says he knows how to rescue the godly from trial. If you want to count on the right view being sustained in you by God, that you would be rescued and the unrighteous and the believing the false would be destroyed, it's godliness that needs to be produced in you. Especially when you're measuring false teachers, because false teachers are trying to create ungodliness. Bold and willful. They are not afraid to revile the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a reviling judgment upon them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and killed, reviling in matters of which they are ignorant, they will be destroyed in the same destruction with them, suffering wrong for their wrongdoing. He's speaking of these false teachers as if they are so impulsive man-driven, so their own interpretation, so much the self when you suddenly realize how bright the self is, did you watch the Democrat uh, debates? But then he even wants the Republican debates. You go, huh, this is the top? This is the best? We don't know how to run, we've been around, I don't know what your view is of the length of human history, but I'm a 6,000 year person. So 6,000 years and people have been working on their math tables and they've been working on their sciencey stuff and they've been trying to figure out political theory and 6,000 years and we can't run a country. I saw a meme the other day, somebody, but if you want to rule the world, first learn to rule your own garden. If you, or you know, find out how hard it is to run a one acre plot of plants 
who don't rebel against you and you still can't keep the weeds out. We're not good at this. You know, I've said countless times before, we're too dumb to run our own lives. And we're like irrational animals. And so consequently, the angelic authorities, the only people that seem to have reverence for angelic authorities are, you know, some women with too much tea. Or they watch, what was that show? Touched by an angel. You say, I don't really want to hang out with those people. Oh well, yeah, but they're the only ones who seem to, you know, have any right, but of the wrong kind of super emotional devotion. These people have a conceit about their power, a conceit about their capabilities. They pronounce a reviling judgment. Because remember, the two basic things that the false teachers get into is defiling passion and despising authority. That's why they win us. That's why they deceive us. Have you been lied to and believed a lie? Then went back and realized, why did I believe that? Now, some people have said to me, not very often, I admit, have you lost some weight? How willing I am to believe that. Really willing. I mean, I haven't. I will die this big, maybe bigger. But when somebody says that to me, one, I said, what an honest person. What an honest person. I'm going to go home and look in the mirror from a certain angle. So I could feel that a little bit longer. I want to believe the lie. Our, our own impulses, not just the impulse of the false teacher, not just the interpretation. We want to believe what we're hearing. Now, I'm saying this in part because this came to mind because yeah, I... As you know, I'm an antinomian. I don't believe that the law is the guide to Christian holiness. I believe love is the guide to Christian holiness. Now, the reason I, I mention that briefly is because both St. Paul and I uh, hold that position, and, um, but there's some dangers in that position. And one of the dangers the more legalistically minded people will bring up is, well, people are just going to go out and say, you are your freedom is just going to get people in trouble. So you better have some rules. Now sometimes it's always easy to preach against views you don't hold. So sometimes it's good to warn people the kind of Christians that enjoy things. We're going to go to the, the hills for the 4th of July. They're going to have hot dogs. Hamburgers too? Yeah. Hamburgers too. I will bring cigars for myself. Bring your own cigars. We enjoy things like that. We like food. We like cigars. I like sitting around talking about things. We like the freedom we have in Christ. But the danger, for those of us who enjoy life's good thing, is that we're susceptible to the temptation of life's good things. Just because you were given it in a right way does not mean that getting more of it in the wrong way is completely alien to you. Because it says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their dissipation, carousing with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice 
unsteady souls. You know, you're tempted when you're lured and enticed by your own desires. So if you're in a church where the pastor has regularly recommended you live by love, not by the law, and so you just sort of shuck the coat of law off, and you're not fully committed to hearing what God is trying to do with you in righteousness, you're just this walking load of, of enticeable desires. And someone who wants to, you know, how is it that pastors the world over end up in somebody's bed they're not supposed to be in? How do they, how do they, how's that happen? There was a famous guy in the Isle of Lewis like a couple years ago, Mc, something, McSomething or other, Ian McCampbell, just can't, Ian Campbell. Seven different women. He was married. His wife found out. He tried to commit suicide. They took him to the hospital, and he hung himself. He was a well-known teacher of Christian things on the radio and book writing. How does that happen? Because people are living in a world that is their own interpretation and based on their impulses rather than looking to retool their life by the impulse of God, impulse of the Holy Spirit. This book says something that it means. I can make a verse mean other things. And I'm doing it so that I get followers or I'm doing it so that you will believe me or I'm doing it to reward my own desires. But God meant something. And I need to find out what that something is. Because if your eyes are full of adultery and insatiable for sin, you are about enticing unsteady people. They have hearts trained in greed. So this, this guy looked like he was writing a, doing a write-up of the most popular teachers in Christian circles today. He said, boy. Somebody had uh, James MacDonald of uh, Harvest, is Harvest? Bible Chapel? I think he has annual uh, expense account, not his salary, was over a million dollars. Who needs that? I mean, I only need 500,000. Just half is all I ask. Trained and greedy. It's almost like they, oh, did you see that? uh, Who was it? uh, Ken Copeland. I think it was Ken Copeland, a little video that was viral a few months ago explaining how he needed another private jet. Another one. And it it, almost like it didn't register with him what it sounded like. Because for a long time he has been enticing unsteady souls along that very line. Greed. Advancement. They're not all the same. Some are about power. Some are about money. Some are about sex. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A dumbass, which is the one time in the scripture, dumbass is used. Spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You remember that story? The bad guys were trying to hire a prophet to come out and curse the Israelites as they were coming up to the promised land and Balaam get hired and 
He was sort of a hired gun. I was going to prophesy what the guy wanted. But he couldn't. He prophesied what the Lord wanted to. Verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by storm. For them, the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved. Sounds just like, what was that in... in, uh, Jude, the same sort of tone, almost the same wording. It says, These are blemishes on your love feasts as they boldly carouse together, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds carried along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. It's the same topic. False teachers who exist in defiling the flesh and despising authority. So Peter and Jude are talking about the same thing, using the same kind of wording. You know, the waterless springs, the empty clouds, the, the, the nether gloom. You have to take refuge because we can't control. We're, too, we're North Idaho. We're a small church. We don't have any power. We don't have any staff. We don't have any... You know, we don't have anything. And false teachers are still going to come. And you're going to see them. You have to know that God knows how to rescue the godly from trial. So let the truth you know make you godly. Don't have the truth you know get into some fight apologetically about how we're right and they're wrong. Because this is not decided by who won the debate. This is decided by who is made more like the Lord Jesus. So if your ideas are right, they will make you more like the Lord Jesus. And the Lord knows how to rescue them. For uttering loud boasts of folly, they entice with licentious passions of the flesh men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. That's the danger of this church. Get promised freedom. St. Paul says that in Galatians. You are called to freedom, my brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh. That's what we're about. But we have to be warned because Christianity is about freedom, living by love, so that you would be righteous. And other people say, hey, all rules are off. Therefore, we can be unrighteous. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. We have a basic thing I wanted you to know coming out of this. Um, What freedom does to you is up to your motives. If you're looking for freedom for righteousness sake, freedom is the answer. 
You're looking for excuses for sin's sake. Freedom is the subject you'll talk about all the time. Freedom, you're called to freedom so that we can live righteously because the law could not produce righteousness. Freedom can only if it's led by the love of God. If you want holiness, freedom is how you get to it. If you want to sin, freedom is how you'll excuse it. You don't want to be, not have that worked out in your own head so that you're not susceptible. If you're the kind of person that has found freedom, delivered from your sins, set free, some new group in town wants to get followers and so they're opening up the doors to all sorts of licentiousness or just not caring that much or even denying Jesus Christ if you need to because they need to draw your impulses. Your path to freedom is not a path to holiness. Make your doctrine pony up with its holiness. If you believe something, it's to make you more like the Lord Jesus. If it doesn't succeed, you might want to get a new theology. So if there is a problem with people, I have this comment at the very end, the self-impulse, the thing that we're not supposed to do in the last verse of chapter 1, the impulse of man, if self-impulse is it, it begins, it has a premise of your own conceit, the conceit of the teacher, the conceit of you, and it finds its reward in your passions. It will give you, it won't make you more righteous, it will make you more pleased. But it begins with a conceit. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Your patience for us, your guidance for us, your Holy Spirit, bringing about your impulse in our lives, we'd ask that we would hear him and want what he wants, that our freedom will be the answer. Keep us from false teachers, Lord. Help us be aware. In your son's name, amen.